Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Let me add my welcome to Zach's. My name is Kevin, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here at Grace Fellowship. I'm glad that you're here with us. Uh, We have been studying the life of Jesus uh, through the lens of Matthew's gospel. So if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 38 through 45 this morning. If you're using uh, the, the black Bible that's in the row there, that should be on page 818. And if you do not have a Bible of your own, we would love for you to take that one with you. Uh, and so uh, take that home with you. Uh, we've got plenty where that came from, but we would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, what we're looking at today is really part three of an ongoing conflict between Jesus and a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. Uh, last week, we saw Jesus heal a demon-possessed man. Uh, And the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, that's silly. But why would Satan undermine his own kingdom by casting out himself? Uh, You you guys aren't even making sense. And then he goes on to warn them uh, with a very strong warning. He says that what they are doing is blaspheming, insulting The work of the Holy Spirit, they're hardening their hearts, and if they persist in that, then they will not be forgiven, that they will have gone too far uh, to be forgiven. And then he says this, the reason that your words are bad is because your heart is bad. Bad trees produce bad fruit. And that would have been offensive to them because they would have considered themselves pretty good guys, right? They had, if you you looked at the outside of their lives, the fruit, they would have thought, yeah, this is pretty good stuff. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're actually bad trees and you're producing bad fruit. And that's not only offensive to them, that's offensive to us. So often we want to blame uh, you know, it's like the person in Walmart. I'm sorry if you have this T-shirt. You should probably get rid of it. But uh, the person in Walmart who wears the T-shirt that says, only good vibes, please. Right? What you're communicating uh, by wearing that T-shirt is, if I snap on you, it's your fault. doesn't say anything about me. And so Jesus looks at that person, looks at the Pharisees and says, no, no, no. The problem is you. The problem is your heart. You're a bad tree if you produce bad fruit. And so what you have to do is you have to make the tree good. You need a spiritual heart transplant. That's what Jesus says to these religious leaders. Now let's see how they respond to Jesus' call. Verses 38 through 45. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. This is the word of the Lord. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, again, uh, you speak hard words and and words that initially would be uh, unclear to us. And so we pray for clarity. We pray that your light uh, would open our eyes and open our ears and transform our hearts. Uh, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at uh, Grace Fellowship, we encourage asking questions. Because asking questions is how you grow and learn. We believe that Christian teaching is able to withstand and answer the questions that are thrown at it. And so, We want to engage with honest seekers and skeptics asking life's big questions. In fact, uh, if you want to join us every Sunday morning, I get here about 930, 940, but our class starts at 945 in this room where we're walking through Christianity's answers to those big questions in life. And we'd love for you to join us. But but we encourage uh, seekers and skeptics to ask questions. But there is such a thing as dishonest skepticism. It's the person who's always asking, but never answering. C.S. Lewis describes him this way in his book, The Abolition of Man. Lewis says, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that a window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It's no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a completely transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. That's the kind of skepticism that Jesus is dealing with here. Right? The, dishonest, the dishonest skeptic is more committed to sitting on the fence than making an actual choice. But as Jesus shows us in this passage, that in itself is a choice. And sadly, it is a rejection of Jesus. In fact, Jesus points out that those who persist in rejecting him will find themselves in worse shape than before. So we're going to look at this passage under three headings. First, a dishonest skepticism refuses to see. A dishonest skepticism refuses to hear or to listen. And then what we see 
with this little parable at the end about the unclean spirit is that such rejection will end badly. That if you persist in sitting on the fence, you will find yourself in worse shape than you did before. Dishonest skepticism refuses to see. Uh, It refuses to see the evidence that is plainly provided, plainly put in front of it. Right? We see that in the request of the scribes and Pharisees. Some of them approach Jesus. They reply to his stern warning by saying, Rabbi, teacher, right? they, they, they ask politely, we want to see a sign from you. Now, what's wrong with that request? They've already seen one. And what, they, and what, they've said, what they're saying is, yeah, 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 we know you already did that miracle. We want more. That one's not convincing enough to us, right? They're, they're looking for a miracle that will prove Jesus' authority, that will prove Jesus' identity to them. They want, we might say it this way, they want a parlor trick. They want Jesus to perform for them. But Jesus doesn't perform parlor tricks. Jesus doesn't dance for people who expect him to. What his miracles do is reveal his authority, like stilling the storm or casting out demons. They're also a sign of his kingdom coming, right? The the blessing of God's kingdom coming into the world of fallen man. That's what Jesus' miracles do. But what the Pharisees are asking for is they want more. They're not convinced by what they've seen already. What they're doing is putting themselves in authority over Jesus. That's what, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, ah, you know what, what you've shown us so far, that's, that's not convincing enough. We need, we need a little bit more than that. But they don't really want to be convinced, do they? If, if Jesus gave them all the evidence in the world, they would still refuse to be happy. They're not, that's what makes them dishonest in their skepticism. They're, they're not coming with an honest question. They're not saying, okay, if you'll just show us, just, just make it really clear to us, right? Jesus has already made it very clear. They just refuse to see it. That's, that's the position that they're in. And so Jesus calls them in verse 39 an evil and adulterous generation. Now, what's he mean by that? Again, those words would have been highly offensive to them. Those words come out of the Old Testament prophets, uh, and they would have been highly offensive to these Pharisees and scribes, these experts, these Bible experts, because they would have considered themselves right the opposite. They would have considered themselves faithful to God, not adulterous. They would have considered themselves good and not evil. But Jesus says that despite their outward show of religion, They are spiritually unfaithful. They are adulterous people, and therefore they are evil and not good. Because their demand for a sign reveals the condition of their heart. That's why Jesus says that. Their demand for a sign reveals the condition of their hearts. I mean, think about what they've just seen. Back in verse 22, we looked at this passage last week. They've seen a man who had a demon was possessed by a demon and could not speak and he could not see. And Jesus heals the demon so that the man can speak and see. And they look at that evidence 
and they say, nah, not good enough, right? They put themselves over Jesus. And you can bring all the evidence in the world that you want to, and they still would not receive it because their hearts are set on unbelief. They are evil and adulterous. And so I want to say at this point, uh, one thing that we can take away from this is that faith and reason, believing something because there is evidence to believe it, those are not opposed to each other. Faith and intellect are not opposites. Right? Some people would say that, that faith is the opposite of reason, that faith is the opposite of intellect, that in order to believe something, you have to check your brain at the door. And sometimes Christians can be guilty of perpetuating this myth. When we talk about faith like a blind leap into the darkness, just kind of hoping that our feet are going to land on something. I've got good news, friend. That's not Christianity. Christianity is trust, that's what the word faith means, trust based on evidence. Faith and reason go together. In fact, for the, for the longest time, uh, we've assumed that the more uh, educated and secular, the, the more educated and wealthy a society becomes, the more secular it becomes. And we get that from looking at uh, Europe. But in their book, uh, in a recent book called The Great Dechurching, the authors point out that that's actually not true. In looking at surveys, the educated are not fleeing the church, but rather the uneducated. That the uneducated are leaving the church at a clip faster than the educated, right? So we've kind of long believed this idea that uh, kids leave the faith because they go to college and have their faith challenged. And what recent surveys are showing us is that's not true. That's, that, that may be happening anecdotally. You may know somebody like that in your life. But actually, the broad statistics show that the uneducated are leaving the faith faster than the educated are. In fact, uh, in, in the evangelical church, education uh, and church attendance go together. So um, faith and reason are not opposed to each other, faith and intelligence are not opposites, right? Here, in this passage, we see that faith in Jesus is actually built on evidence, on reality, on truth. It's not a blind leap into the dark. It's trust in something solid, right? Jesus has proven himself, but the dishonest dishonest skeptic refuses to see it. Uh, Dishonest skepticism also refuses to listen. Look back again at verses 39 and 40. Because they refuse the clear signs he's already given, then Jesus says he'll only give them one more, and that will be the sign of Jonah. What in the world is he talking about? You may remember the story of Jonah, uh, this unwilling prophet. God tells him to go and preach to the city of Nineveh, tell Nineveh that it can expect God's judgment. And Jonah does not like the Ninevites, and so he gets on a boat and sails in the opposite direction, which, as a strategy goes, I feel like if I were going to run from God and not do what he told me to do, I probably would not choose the open sea. I might go like where there's firm ground under my feet, but Jonah uh, picked a boat uh, and sailed into the ocean blue, and God 
sent a storm after him, and the, and the boat is about to uh, sink. And Jonah goes to the sailors uh, who, are try, who are trying to pray to their pagan gods and figure out what's happening. Jonah goes to them and he says, guys, it's my fault. You're going to need to throw me over. And so they throw him over. The storm stops. Uh, and as Jonah is sinking, uh, a great fish comes and swallows Jonah. And if you read Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2, you know that Jonah figures he's as good as dead. Right? I mean, what would you think if you were in the belly of a fish going down into the depths of the ocean, right? This is it. And so Jonah cries out to God from the belly of the fish, and God delivers him from death. And, Jon- and, and Jesus says, that sign, right? Just, just as Jonah was in the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth, the grave, for three days and three nights. He doesn't mean three literal days and three nights, right? He doesn't work for a hotel chain, uh, he means he's, he's including that all-encompassing, right? That on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. That's the sign of Jonah. That just as Jonah was delivered from certain death, so also Jesus will be delivered from actual death. He will rise from the tomb, and that will be the sign for Jesus' generation. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the ultimate sign that prove his identity and authority. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15 that without the resurrection, there is no good news. That the resurrection is ultimate proof of who Jesus is. Now, you may be here this morning and you may say, that sounds like a myth to me. But the Bible doesn't talk that way. It doesn't write about it like it's a legend. In fact, the way that Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15 is he tells us all of the people who witnessed Jesus' resurrection, who saw Jesus, after, who saw Jesus die and then saw him come back. That there were eyewitnesses in the day that Paul was writing. So that if somebody said, hey, by the way, that's not true, there would have been witnesses to corroborate the truth of that, right? Christianity has always portrayed itself not on some legendary story about a man named Jesus, but on the actual facts of Jesus' life. And it's the dishonest skeptic who refuses to hear. Jesus says that the the people of Nineveh will rise up and condemn his hearers. Why? Because they received Jonah's message. They repented when Jonah preached to them. And these people are not. Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here. And we might think Jesus would say someone greater than Jonah is here. But what he's saying is, right, something Jesus is referring to himself, the work that he does, The salvation he provides, the arrival of God's kingdom, that's the something, right? All of that goes far beyond what Nineveh received from Jonah. Jesus says the the men of Nineveh repented for less, and you will be judged because you refused to repent with me. It's almost like the the men of Nineveh and and Jesus' generation will be side by side on judgment day, uh, and when the charges are read out, the Ninevites are going to turn and look at Jesus' generation and be like, are you kidding me? We had an unwilling prophet, and we repented at what he said. You had the Son of God, and he did miracles in your midst, and you still refused to repent? And then Jesus brings up another Gentile, another pagan. He talks about the queen of the south. 
He's referring to the queen of Sheba from 1 Kings chapter 10, where we read about this queen who traveled a long distance to hear Solomon's wisdom. She wanted to see and hear Solomon for herself. So she's an even better example than the Ninevites. They responded to a messenger sent to them, while she's the one who came to the messenger. And just like the Ninevites, she will rise up on Judgment Day to condemn Jesus' generation. Why? Because something greater than Solomon is here. Right? She'll be on the other side in the line on Judgment Day. And she's going to look at him and say, are you kidding me? I came to and was amazed at the wisdom of Solomon, that king, and you got the true king? And you didn't believe him? You wouldn't listen to him? Now, I don't want you to miss what Jesus is saying here. Don't miss what Jesus is claiming for himself. Many uh, would put Jesus on the same level as Gandhi, as Buddha, as Muhammad, right? One among many of the great religious teachers who told us how to live. But that's not at all what Jesus says about himself. He doesn't claim to be a simple religious teacher. He's claiming to be so much more. He's claiming to be something better. C.S. Lewis, again, he, he wasn't the first person to make this argument, but he made it very popular. Right? He said Jesus is either a liar, he's deceiving other people on purpose, or he's a lunatic. He's deceived himself, or he's Lord, and you have to bow the knee to him. Here's how Lewis puts it. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Friend, if you are a skeptic this morning, I'm glad that you're here, and I want you to deal honestly with Jesus. Christian, we can make Christianity about So many things. And Christianity does produce so many things. And we have answers. Christian teaching has answers to so many things about uh, sexuality and gender. Yes, even politics. Right? But, But let's make Christianity about Jesus. Let's introduce and invite people to the person of Jesus. To consider Jesus' words. To look at Jesus' life. Because once someone bows the knee to Jesus, everything else will fall into place. Let's deal honestly with Jesus' claims first. Jesus closes this section by telling a parable. And in that parable, he shows us that if you continue to reject him, then that rejection will end badly. Now, this is a, this, this is a parable about unclean spirits uh, A parable is a story that is used to make a point. Jesus is not describing how evil spirits work. Uh, 
He's telling this story to underline the point that he just made. Right In the story, this unclean spirit returns to its former house, a person, and finds him empty, clean, and put in order. And so, right, so this person has cleaned himself up since the evil spirit left. But what's the problem? He's empty. There's no other spiritual influence inhabiting the house. And so... The spirit goes and grabs seven other more wicked spirits, and they all move in, and they wreck the place. What is Jesus saying? He's saying if no one inhabits your spiritual house, then your final condition will be worse. That's the condition of Jesus' hearers, right? Their, Their lives look clean. They've tidied things up. They've made some moral reformation. But their hearts are empty. The Holy Spirit is not dwelling there. They have not been changed from the inside out. So we're back to where we began. They have not made the tree good. They may have cut off all the bad fruit for a time, but they haven't actually changed the core of the problem. Their changes are only superficial. And what's so interesting about this is that these skeptics are not atheists or agnostics. They are religious men. They are men who knew their Bibles. These would be Sunday school teachers and leaders in the church. But they're self-righteous. Their outward obedience keeps them from seeing their true need. Just like a vaccine contains enough of a a dead virus to inoculate you against the real thing, so also dead religion can inoculate you against the real thing. That's that's what's happened to these men. Their self-righteousness has inoculated them against seeing their need of Jesus. And so no matter how many signs they see, they would still refuse because their hearts are bad. And so... That begs the question then, what about you and what about me? Baked into this warning, and make no mistake, that's what it is, but baked into this warning is also an invitation. Jesus has proven himself. He is the Son of God and Savior of sinners. And so I would encourage you this morning Do not reject the truth that Jesus offers, but come. Yes, you, the honest skeptic, the person who's asking the questions, come and listen to Jesus and hear what he has to say and trust in him and receive life. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming into our midst, for speaking clearly, for revealing yourself and proving yourself with signs and wonders, miraculous deeds. Lord, I pray that we would, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that we would see you, that we would hear you, and that we would come to you in faith. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.